We argue that the disposition effect, this tendency to hold on to your losers, to postpone selling stocks for loss and instead to sell your winners, uh, can contribute to overconfidence. Have you ever wondered about how we make decisions about our money? Or why we feel the way we do about those decisions? Welcome to Nudging Financial Behavior, the podcast that aims to help you understand how and why you make certain decisions about money. Presented by Dr. Giselle Willows, an expert in behavioral finance. This podcast is all about looking at human behavior and biases, especially when it comes to your finances. You can catch the series on YouTube, the Nudging Financial Behavior blog, or on your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to like and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an episode. Special thanks to our sponsor, IG Market South Africa, a world-leading online trading provider that gives you access to opportunities across thousands of financial markets through their intuitive platforms and apps. Let's get started. Welcome to the fourth episode of season two of the Nudging Financial Behavior podcast. I'm Dr. Giselle Willows. Great to have you here with us. In this series, we're breaking down human behavior and biases as we try to help you understand how and why you make certain decisions about your finances. Today, I want to investigate a bias called the disposition effect. This is the manifestation of loss aversion in our investing decisions. I've also got Terry O'Dean joining me to help us with this discussion. Terry is a professor of finance at the Haas School of Business at the University of California in Berkeley and a prolific academic on the subject matter. Before we begin, a little reminder to please like this episode and subscribe to our channel. It's free to subscribe, so no cost to you, but every extra subscriber helps the channel get noticed, so it really helps us. Now, if you're a loss-averse investor, which trust me, you probably are, you might have already heard about the disposition effect. How many times has this happened to you? You're holding an investment and it's losing value. You're slightly worried, but you keep holding it, hoping things will turn around. That's rather risky behavior, don't you think? Remember what loss aversion is. And remember, I alluded to referring to how we're risk-seeking with our losses. Doesn't that sound like what you're doing? On the flip side of that, let's say you've got an investment that is increasing in value. You might be thinking that the good times won't continue forever, so best you bag those gains and cash in. Let's not analyze this behavior. You're not taking much of a chance here. You're playing it safe, but it actually shows that you're being risk averse. Coming back to loss aversion, you're being risk averse with your gains and risk seeking with your losses. You're selling the winner, the share that made a profit, but holding on to the loser, the share that's made a loss. Can you see how that's loss aversion? I know it's a complex concept and difficult to explain, but once you get it, wow. I suppose you can now appreciate why John Maynard Keene said, It's hard to see how any rational man can ever invest. I've actually done a bit of research on this myself. Come on, I need to make sure I remind you all that I'm actually a researcher, not just a podcast host. It was an emerging market study as we focused specifically on investors in the South African market. We got data of just under 5,000 investor accounts from a South African stockbroker. But in short, we had two groups, investors acting in their own capacity and those who had the assistance of a professional investment advisor. And not unsurprisingly, 
we found that the investors were all exhibiting the disposition effect. But the more interesting finding is that the disposition effect was less pronounced for the investors who were working with an advisor. As I keep saying, education and awareness. And if you don't have it yourself, getting a professional to do it with you can really limit the damage that some of these biases can cause. I'm actually going to bring my guest in right now because he knows a lot about this topic. Terry O'Dean is a professor at the Haas School of Business, which is part of the University of California. He's also one of my inspirations for my own academic career. So this is quite a big honor for me to have him as a guest on my podcast. Terry is also a prolific researcher and author. Welcome to the show, Terry. Thank you. Before we get into our talk, I want to quickly tell the listeners the story of how we actually came to know each other. I'm not sure you'll even remember the details, but I tell my students the story all the time. So for those that have been listening to this podcast from the beginning, you'll recall me telling the story in the very first episode of season one of how I did my master's in finance, where I was introduced to the field of behavioral finance. And in that process, I came across a paper called Boys Will Be Boys a paper about overconfident men who trade too much and then compromise their returns. And then the dissertation I did for my master's was actually a replication of the study in the South African market. Anyways, fast forward two years, I'm in the first year of my PhD and I have a six month sabbatical coming up. In planning for that sabbatical, a colleague encouraged me to do a research visit abroad to get some international experience. He told me to find a course abroad or contact a well-known academic in my field of research. I don't recall giving it too much thought at the time, but later that week, I distinctly remember it being a Friday night. I was home alone, probably had a glass of wine, and I suddenly thought, wait a minute, Boys Will Be Boys by Barbara and Odine. I should contact them. Now, I'm not quite sure why I started to Google Odine and not Barbara, but nonetheless, I found Odine's staff page and I sent him an email explaining who I was, what I was doing, and if it was possible at all to do a research visit. Truthfully, I was expecting a, this email does not exist, or for a mail to just be ignored. But within 30 minutes, I can still remember exactly where I was sitting. I got a response saying something like, sure, get in touch with whatever office it was, and we can arrange something for you. Like, wow. A few months later, I was on a plane to Berkeley where I met the Terry O'Dean. Well, I remember meeting you. I don't remember our email exchange. I know, because we were having dinner one night where you asked me, how exactly did you arrange this research visit? And I relayed the story to you and you were a bit perplexed, as you are now again, telling me that you never respond to emails like that. So I clearly caught you at a good time. Yeah, I, I, I'm usually late responding to emails and I, you know, I'll go through my old email and say, oh my gosh, I forgot that one and that one. So most of my emails, begin with an apology for being so slow in responding. I guess you just, just got lucky. I definitely got lucky and I'm glad I did. So I always tell my students, people can sometimes surprise you, take a chance, you never know what might happen. But anyway, let's get into our subject matter for this episode. We're talking about the disposition effect. And I know this is going back in time, but your paper, Are Investors Reluctant to Realize Their Losses, which at the time of this recording is sitting on over five and a half thousand citations, is seminal in this area. I know it's research from a while ago, but my listeners aren't all academics and might not know it. So do you mind telling us about that research? Um, sure. 
Actually, the the term the disposition effect was coined by Mayor Statman and Herr Sheffrin. I saw Mayor at a conference last week, and they they wrote this paper and they said, you know, people hold on to their losing investments. They tend to sell their winners. This is there's we can talk about the motivations. There's various ways that you can motivate this, but they're all kind of related. And their paper was mostly mostly theoretical. They had a little empirical section, but it wasn't it wasn't fully convincing. They didn't really have the right data to show this was true. And I read their paper and I thought about my own experience when I used to trade stocks before I was an academic, and I thought, well, that's what I did. And I was in a class taught by um, George Ekerloff, who later won Nobel Prize in uh, economics. But I was sitting in a class that he was teaching to PhD students on macroeconomics. And he, he said, those of you who are thinking of writing empirical papers, don't just go and find some tired, worn out data set that you know, hundreds of people have used. Find a question that you want to answer and figure out what data you need to answer that question and go go get it. So I started I started ignoring the rest of the lecture and thinking about this and I thought, well, I just read this paper about this position effect. I'm sure it's true. People most people they hold on to those losers, they tell themselves it's gonna come back, it's not a real loss yet. And they sell the winners and they feel good. And uh, I started thinking, well, what data do I need to show that this is what people really do? And by the way, the standard theory in, econo- in, in financial economics at the time, the assumption was people behaved in the opposite way because it was more tax advantageous to, uh, you know, um, what did I just say? Yeah, to, it's more tax advantageous to sell your losers, but people sell their winners and hold on to their losers because they feel good selling the winners. They feel bad when they sell for loss. So I decided, well, I'm going to get data on retail investors. And I called up a local uh, uh, stock brokerage firm and realized I wasn't going to get anywhere doing that, uh, just calling. So I wrote letters to probably 20 brokerage firms and I think I got four replies, all of which were basically said no, and the other 16 just ignored me. And then I started just asking. I didn't have a lot of contacts, but people I knew, I just asked them, do you know anyone who can help me get data for my dissertation? I uh, At one point, I was at a party, and, and a guy said, well, no, but I, I was just at a private school auction, and I, I bought the right to play tennis on the private tennis court of the president of a uh, brokerage firm. And uh, the guy said, I didn't even play tennis. I just thought I should buy something at the auction. So he gave me the certificate. I went and played tennis on the guy's court and met him. And I was supposed to come back and play again. I was going to ask him for data. But uh, another contact worked out. And so after 11 months, I got data on retail investors and I got their trading records. 
and I analyzed them. And sure enough, people hold on to their losers and sell their winners. Now, subsequently, many researchers have uh, replicated this finding in different data sets and for different asset classes. So it's true all over the world. It's true in real estate. It's true in stocks. It's true in uh, lots of investments. And now, I mean, we're almost three decades on from that research. So bring us up to speed with further developments and findings on the disposition effect. Oh, I think the biggest, you know, the biggest thing is say it's, it's robust. Uh, I have, uh, I'm, currently have a, what we call a working paper, a paper that I wrote with a couple of authors. We've presented it at several conferences and you know, we'll be submitting it uh, to a journal in the next month or two, where we argue that the disposition effect, this tendency to hold on to your losers, to postpone selling stocks for loss and instead to sell your winners, uh, can contribute to overconfidence. Now you brought up overconfidence before. Boys Will Be Boys was about overconfidence and of course about how some of us have a little more overconfidence than others on average. Uh, what my um, co-authors, Katrine Goodker and uh, Paul Smeets and I say in this new paper is that if people sell their winning investments and then go back and say to themselves, oh, how good of an investor am I? It's quite possible that many of them just sort of count how many stocks they sold for a gain and how many they sold for a loss. But if you're selling your winners and holding on to your losers, that's going to give you an, an upward bias in what your performance is. And we've looked at that. We can replicate that in a lab setting, but also we've looked at Dutch data and we ask people how well they think they performed uh, in, in, in the year for which we have data and for which we were able to survey them uh, compared to the other people at the, at the, same, at the same bank. And we find that, and, and we also ask them to report how many stocks they sold for a gain and for a loss, and then we have their trading records. And we look to see how many they sold for a gain and for a loss. And it turns out that the difference in how many stocks they think they sold for a gain versus a loss is a much better prediction predictor of what they think their relative performance was than their actual performance. And the other thing we find is they tend to exaggerate how many stocks they sold for a gain compared to what they actually did. So they remember doing better than they did, and they use this self-serving metric when assessing uh, their ability. And that, I don't think that's the fundamental source of overconfidence, but it's one of the things that contributes to overconfidence. Fascinating. Now, because you mentioned it, you spoke about overconfidence. I really want to chat to you about overtrading as well. It's not directly linked to the disposition effect, but selling winners, like we discussed, can lead to overtrading. And if anyone has to go look at your research output, they'll see a lot of work on overtrading, right? Trading is hazardous to your wealth. Do investors trade too much, amongst others? We know overtrading is perilous. But just in case my listeners don't believe me when I say that, please share some of your findings so that we can really convince them. Sure. So 
one of the things when I got the data, I was getting it to analyze, you know, to, to see if there was a disposition effect. But now I had the data. Actually, uh, I can remember I was, I, 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 I was giving a ride to Richard Thaler, another behavioral economist and one who won a Nobel Prize much you know, recently. And this was probably 20, 30, I guess probably 30 years ago. And uh, I, um, I said to him, okay, I've written a theoretical paper and I've written this empirical paper on the disposition effect. And I'm thinking of doing an experiment. And he said, no, no, don't, don't do an experiment. Uh, write another empirical paper. Wait to do an experiment until you have a job. Because I was a PhD student at the time. And then he paused and said, now wait till you have tenure. Uh, I am doing experiments now, but I did, I did end up waiting. So I, I decided, okay, I was, I'd written a theoretical paper about what happens in like, typical uh, academic finance models. What happens in the model if you make a little twist uh, and, and assume that people think they know more than they do? So the standard models always assume that people are hyper-rational. They are well-calibrated. They know a lot. They, um, they always make the best possible decision given the information available. And so in my theory paper, I said, okay, I'm just going to make this little change of assumption. I'm going to I'm, I'm going to make the assumption that everyone thinks that they know a little more than they do, that they're a little smarter than than they are. Their information is a little better than it is, and that led to a prediction that people would trade too much, that overconfident investors would trade too much, and that would make them worse off. So I had this data. I said, okay, let's see. Are people over trading too much? I thought that if I that if I looked at the trading of these investors, I'd find that their I compared how their buys did after they were bought, how the stocks they bought did over the next few months, year or two years, and how the stocks they sold did over the next four months, one year, two years. And what I expected was that the stocks they bought and the stocks they sold would perform about the same, but that they would lose because of the transactions costs. And the data I had was from, uh, the first data set was from the late 80s and early 90s. And even though the data was from a discount uh, broker, commissions added up and spreads were fairly big. To my surprise, I found that even if I ignored transactions costs, I found that the stocks these people bought went on to underperform the stocks they sold on average by about three percentage points over the next year. So not only were they paying fees to trade, but they were making poor trading decisions. I got another data set from the same discount brokerage firm and Brad Barber and I analyzed that and we used different methodology, but we basically found, and this time we included the trading costs. We knew what the commissions, they, what commissions they paid. We, you know, we we knew exactly what they had paid for stocks, and we looked to see whether the people who were trading most actively were doing better or worse than the people trading less actively. 
This is a very busy time in the market, uh, 91 to 96. But we found that the uh, 20% of investors who traded most actively underperformed the least active, the buy and hold investors, by about six percentage points a year, which is huge. Uh, later, I, uh, Brad and I teamed up uh, with Jane... Um, uh, Liu and, uh, and, 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 and her husband, Professor Lee, and we, um, looked at data in Taiwan. We had every trade for, for every investor in Taiwan. And, uh, over, uh, initially a five year period, eventually we got 16 years of data. And, we found that the retail investors, the who dominated the market, uh, the Taiwan market, much like other um, markets in Asia, the Chinese market, the Indian market, uh, is dominated by retail investors. Most of the trading is done by retail investors, unlike the U.S., where retail there are a lot of active retail investors, but most trades are by institutional investors. And in Taiwan, we found that the retail investors through their trading activity, we're losing the equivalent of about 2% of GDP. Uh, it was costing them in the neighborhood of four percentage points uh, a year to um, trade. Now that was, that included commissions. There was a transactions cost. They were making poor um, stock decisions in terms of which stocks to buy and sell. And they, we're even losing money on market timing. When on, in aggregate, the retail investors put money into the market, it tended to do less well over the next six months. So uh, we have other papers, but <laughs> So how do we stop doing this over trading? Well, I have two related suggestions. And these, this, I teach, I teach personal finance to uh, big classes of undergrads. I'll be teaching 600 students tomorrow. And what I tell them is when they're saving for retirement, they should simply buy and hold low-cost mutual funds, generally what we call index funds. Find funds that have very low fees, which is quite possible these days, and just hold them. And if you find that you just really enjoy trading, tell yourself, okay, this is entertainment. This is something I enjoy doing. This is not my long-term save for retirement. And take an amount of money that you can afford to possibly lose much of, set it aside in a very separate account, and play with that. It's probably better than betting on sports, but it's probably going to be more expensive than going to the movies. Useful tips and wise words from a teacher when you're an undergrad. So that's overtrading. If I now bring it back to the disposition effect, how do we train ourselves to realize those losses? Anyone who knows me will know that I love saying it's only a paper loss, meaning it's only a loss if I actually sell, but I really should rather sell. Sure. 
So this came up at the conference I was at last week where I presented the paper about how the disposition effect can lead to more overconfidence. And one of the audience uh, members of the audience asked exactly that question. And we had a little discussion because th this particular audience was mostly uh, professionals, money managers, some financial advisors. It was for the Journal of Investment Management. And obviously, if you follow the advice I just gave and buy and hold a broad-based, low-cost index fund, this isn't going to be such an issue. But if you are trading, then probably the thing to do is give yourself some rules in advance. Uh, one typical rule is uh, that, that sometimes money management funds will have for a new managers. They just say, if you buy something and it drops 10%, you have to sell it. And I heard a different rule when I was at the, um, at the conference. These days, unlike in the past, these days, commissions and spreads are actually very low. So an institutional trader, if they're not moving too big of a position, can trade pretty cheaply. And what one of the uh, money managers at the conference said is, he tells his, his traders, you sell it. And then you ask yourself, do I want to buy it back? So it's an interesting question because once you've made that sale and just said, okay, it's done, you don't own it anymore. Now, do you want it in your portfolio? Uh, it might be a little expensive to routinely like sell something every day and then buy it back. But at the very least, you should be saying to yourself, if I didn't own this right now and admit you're not very happy about the fact that you own it, and you wish you didn't own it and because it's lost money and you're thinking I never should have bought it. At least that's been my experience. Uh, I had a couple of um, memorable experiences with the disposition effect before I was an academic. And I can remember really regretting that I'd ever bought something, but I couldn't bring myself to sell it. But you know, if I, it weren't my portfolio and then you say, is this something you'd like to buy? And the answer would be, I really like that. I mean, it's it's really interesting. As you're saying it now, I'm thinking of some things that I earn and I'm going, mm, would I buy it now? And the answer is no. Um, it's quite illuminating when you frame it that way and think about it. Thank you very much for sharing all your research with us and all your insights on this topic. It's been an absolute honor to get your wealth of experience in the area and share it with the listeners. And a real extra personal thank you for the supportive role you've played for me in my personal academic career. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for inviting me. And uh, it's been a pleasure to see your career blossom and grow. You've been great. Thank you very much. That was a very special interview for me. Terry Dean has always been such a big influence in my career. But now it's time to get on with the podcast. The disposition effect is really a great practical way to see how loss aversion can impact your financial decisions. Just to recap, when you are loss averse, you become risk averse with your gains and risk seeking with your losses. Okay, I'm going to break it down for you once more because I really want to make sure you understand the concept. You've got a share that's made you a profit. Suddenly, your loss aversion kicks in and you start to fear that you'll lose that profit if you hold onto the share. So. You sell it and hold on to your profits. 
even though there's a chance it could have made you some more profit if you'd held on to it for longer, but you're not willing to take that risk. Now, on the other hand, I said you become risk-seeking with your losses. So, you have a share that's made a loss for you. The thought of selling that share and accepting that loss as final is painful when you're loss-averse. So you're actually willing to hold on to that share despite the chance of it making further losses. And yes, there's some regret avoidance tucked in there too. This is a bias that's pretty self-explanatory. If you've ever regretted doing something, you're human and you'll know that the feeling of regret is unpleasant and one that we'd rather avoid at all costs. So we make decisions to minimize regret. We don't want to regret not bagging those gains. So we sell quickly. Now, when you hear the term disposition effect, many investors might know that this is what it's referring to. Selling your winners and holding on to your losers. But now you know what it's actually all about. It's all got to do with your loss aversion. Human nature really can be strange, and it can be so difficult to spot biases at play in our own behavior. I hope you've been able to wrap your head around the disposition effect. It's a big one if you're an investor. Now, we're still not quite done with our discussion on risk aversion and loss aversion. In the next episode, we're talking about impression management, which is shifting things around and looking at how we can use loss aversion to our advantage. But before we go, don't forget to like this episode and hit the subscribe button. Till next time. That was Nudging Financial Behavior, hosted by behavioral finance expert, Dr. Giselle Willows. Make sure you like and subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. You can catch the Nudging Financial Behavior podcast on YouTube, our blog, or your favorite podcast streaming platform. Thank you again to our sponsors, IG Market South Africa, for helping to bring the show to life. And now for the disclaimer. This podcast should not be seen as advice. All the information and opinions are the general nature. They are not intended to address the needs or circumstances of any individual. We are not financial advisors, neither are any of our staff or service providers, nor is our sponsor. All expressions of opinion by the host or guest are subject to change without notice in reaction to shifting market conditions. Any information you get from us should be seen as only that, information only.